Let's begin our Sunday school lesson. We are in 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. And we finished verse 38 last week by studying how the fear of the Lord led Joseph to honoring covenants. And we noted that he honored a covenant between his master and him, between his master and his master's wife, but the most important covenant he honored and the one that enabled him to honor the others was his covenant with God. Now let's go right into verse 39 for the new part of our study. In 2 Kings 17, verse 39, if you're just tuning in, But the Lord your God ye shall fear, and he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. And although the Jewish priest who had been sent from Assyria had taught the Samaritans how they should fear the Lord earlier in this chapter, they didn't do it right. Neither did the children of Israel, who had also been taught to fear the Lord through centuries and centuries of the prophets bringing God's word to them. And the law and the priesthood, when the priesthood was doing it right. And as I studied this passage, I came across another passage that revealed a great truth concerning fear of the Lord. You may recall after the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, they whined and complained and murmured about how good they had it in Egypt. They referenced the food, didn't they? They said, we were by the flesh pots and we enjoyed the leeks and the garlics and garlic and the onions. And Moses, he's brought us out to the wilderness to die. They were carnal people. And all but two members of that generation died in the wilderness. And Joshua and Caleb would go into the promised land with that next generation of Israelites. So we rewind back in time to even before that event. When Pharaoh's army was chasing the children of Israel as they approached the Red Sea. And God parted that Red Sea and dried up the ground and let every one of the children of Israel whom he had delivered from bondage, the ones who were still, uh, even the mixed multitude who was with them, they all crossed over on dry ground. And then God drowned the entire Egyptian army by releasing that judgment upon them that he withheld from the children of Israel, that being a wall of water, the waters of the Red Sea. Now here's the next verse after that mighty scene, and it's found in Exodus 14, verse 31. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord. 
and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. And in that verse, I couldn't help but notice that God first delivered his people before they feared him. He delivered the children of Israel before the children of Israel feared the Lord. They didn't first fear the Lord before he delivered them. Their fear was based upon the truth that God had delivered them. And in our present verse here in 2 Kings 17, God tells them to fear him and then he shall deliver them from their enemies. Enemies. It's like a spiritual sandwich. It's the best I could do this morning for you. You have God's deliverance, you have man's fear, and you have God's deliverance. And it's God's faithfulness, not man's fear of the Lord, that began our deliverance. And it's God's faithfulness that will complete our deliverance from sin. Are you hung up on the spiritual sandwich analogy? Let me read you a verse that will help you with that. It's found in Philippians 1, verse 6. Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you. Now there's the top piece of bread right there. Will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now that's the other piece. He began it and he will perform it. And the work is right here in the middle. That's what we accept by faith. Here's another one. Found in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. And if you're taking notes, put the little letter A, the lowercase letter A. That tells us we're not reading the entire verse, but just the first part. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the author. He began it. Here's our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. We neither began it nor will we finish it. By faith, we accepted the work. And it really helps us understand that we didn't just get up one day and in our flesh decide to seek God for salvation. The children of Israel did not just get up one day while they were in Egypt and say, hmm, today is a good day to start fearing the Lord. I think I shall begin. No. God delivered them. They feared him. And he will deliver them again. Because right now in our text, they are in Assyrian captivity. God began the work. The people believed in the work and God will finish the work. And even though the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt, they were still a carnal bunch of people. They were not a spiritually mature bunch who feared the Lord as they should have. They had done nothing to commend themselves to the Lord. God didn't look at the children of Israel in Egypt and say, you know, they've come a long way. They are really doing better than they were the generation before and the generation before. They have improved themselves. 
No, it was by grace and mercy alone that God looked upon them and had pity on them and delivered them. How do we know they were carnal? Well, do you remember the story about Moses seeing an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew? And Moses killed that Egyptian and buried him in the sand. And you would think the Hebrews or the children of Israel would have been so glad that Moses came to their rescue that they would have honored him and said, Moses, you're truly a servant of God. You stood up for God's people. Well, here's their response. This happened the next day. And it's found in Exodus chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. If you want to write that down, Exodus 2, 13 through 14. This is speaking of Moses. And when he went out the second day, that means the day after he killed the Egyptian, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge over us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou killest the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. What a response. The, the day before, you would think Moses had earned his stripes in the presence of those Hebrews. And that because of what he had done the day before, making right something that was wrong, the next day he would have been honored as a judge, a righteous judge. That the two Hebrews who were striving against one another and one of them had resorted to physical violence, that the one in the wrong would have said, you know, you're right, Moses. I saw what you did yesterday. You're a righteous man. You're a man of God. And you're right. I was wrong today and I should not have smitten my Hebrew brother. And I'm sorry. No, he said, who made you a judge over us? Do you know how many times, and perhaps this has happened to you, when you've tried to tell someone what God's word says about their sin, and they say, you can't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me. They don't understand what judgment is. They have no idea the context of the statement Jesus made, judge not lest ye also be judged. They don't read the whole passage and see what that actually means. There's no appreciation for Moses' righteous judgment at all. And across the masses in this world, there's no appreciation for God's word when man speaks it. But there are some who honor it. And we want to be those people. When the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, they were just as unworthy as we were when we were delivered from our bondage of sin. So in the wilderness, they feared the Lord for the works they saw with their own eyes, rather than for the great deliverance he gave them. He delivered them from Egypt, but in doing so, he was showing them a greater deliverance, and that is the one he would accomplish at the cross when he delivered mankind from sin.
The right kind of fear of the Lord not only honors the short-term physical deliverance of the past, but it looks forward to the Lord's deliverance in the future. Now look back in your text, 2 Kings 17, verse 38, where it says, And he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Let's look at that phrase for a moment. Out of the hand of all your enemies. That means not only the physical hand of their enemies, for they were in bondage, and so are the children of Israel in the day we read about. They're in bondage to Assyria. But also, God delivered them from the place of their enemies and from the power of their enemies. Israel had physically been taken by the hand of Assyria to Assyria, which was also the place of their enemies. And they'd not been allowed to leave, which shows you the power of their enemies. They were in bondage there as much as they were in bondage in Egypt, Babylon, and under the Roman Empire. And when God delivered his people from their enemies in the Bible, we read of these stories over and over. He delivered them physically and geographically and politically. You know, there is no good reason that Israel should ever have been removed from the promised land when God put them there, when he brought them into that land. There was no good reason Israel's enemies should have been successful in conquering any part of the promised land or taking any of its people captives. And there was no good reason Israel should have ever been under the political power of any other country. Remember, they lived in their own land and were still politically subject to various governments such as the Romans. And when God delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage, they were never meant to be in bondage again. So why were they? They did not fear the Lord, as in this case. So they were made captives of their enemies in every way. And just as their deliverance is a picture of the sinner's deliverance from his enemies, let's make a spiritual application here. I'm going to give you a few verses. The first one is in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 through 26. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26. For he must reign, that is Christ, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Now, when Israel feared the Lord, all of their enemies were under their feet. Psalm chapter 47, verses 2 and 3 is another verse. Psalm 47, verses 2 through 3. For the Lord Most High is terrible. That means he causes terror. That doesn't mean he's awful. He is a great king over all the earth. 
He shall subdue the people under us and the nations under our feet. And as we've learned, those enemies subdued Israel when Israel disobeyed the Lord and did not fear him. And had Israel completely obeyed the Lord, their earthly enemies would still be under their feet. And this is another demonstration of how the works of man can never, never result in our enemies being put under our feet. I don't know how many battles and wars and conflicts mankind has had since the garden, but it's had to, has to be in the thousands upon thousands, some on greater scale, some of a lesser scale, some have never stopped. And when one country conquers and puts its enemies under its feet, it's not long until another country conquers or that country wins its freedom back. And it's just give and take, push and pull. And it's never final. And Israel and we have something in common. We are sinners who have not obeyed God's law. And although for Israel the result of that disobedience was to be captives in this nation and that nation, we face an even bigger enemy. An enemy that in our flesh we have failed to subdue. If you ask the pers average person on the street, who is America's biggest enemy? Some would say, well, it's China. Others Oh, uh, well, it's Russia. Oh, no, no, it's Saudi Arabia. It's this country and that. It's all of the countries sending their people to illegally cross our border. None of those are our biggest enemies. Those are temporary earthly enemies. That biggest enemy we face is the enemy of death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, little letter A First part of the verse says, for the wages of sin is death. So if you say, well, our biggest enemy is sin. Yes, in a sense it is, but it leads to death and not just one death. Because of sin, we must die. And all people who have lived will die a physical death. Even in a sense, those who are raptured from the earth without going to the grave that body itself will not go to be with Jesus because it's a corrupt body. It has to be changed. So in a sense, there is a death there. And we can't put that enemy under our feet, can we? No matter how strong our armies are, someone else has to do that for us. And I'm going to read that verse from 1 Corinthians 15 again, the one I just read you. For he must reign, listen for the pronouns, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Who's going to do that? Jesus already did it. And he's going to complete that for us practically. He's done it for us positionally. But he's going to complete it for us practically one day. Notice that passage says, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Now a person might look at that and say, well, that's wonderful. 
That's good for Jesus and his enemies that they're under his feet. But what about my enemies? What about death? Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 23. Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Listen, and hath put all things under his feet. And gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now I know underlined in, in my notes, Christ hath put all things under his feet, head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now let's digest some of that passage a little bit. Paul there is, of course, writing about the Lord Jesus Christ, who has put all things, including our enemies, under his feet. And he wrote that Christ is the head of the church, which is Christ's body. Now, if you are saved, you are a member of Christ's body. You are a member of the church. Whether you're a member of Central Baptist Church here or Central Baptist Church in another city or Second Baptist Church over yonder or overseas, the right-believing church our brothers, uh, brother, uh, brother Wisdom has, you're members of the body of Christ. And if you're a member of his body, then his feet are your feet. Where did he put all of his enemies? He put them under his feet. He put them under his feet, and the only way they're under my feet is if they're under his feet and I am in him. All enemies he put under his feet are put under your feet, even the last enemy, which is death. When I die, this corrupt body, which gets more arthritic by the week, not complaining, just giving you a news update. I'm glad to be here. But this old corrupt body is going to go into a grave somewhere after it goes to medical school, God willing. And because Jesus put the enemy of death under his feet, which are my feet, then death doesn't get to keep me as its prisoner when I die. In fact, my corrupt body, no matter how long it lays in the ground or in the, the tomb or wherever it goes, my corrupt body is going to be changed in the resurrection and I will live forever. As the Bible says, death hath no more dominion over me. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6. Revelation 20 verse 6. It describes the saved as those who have part in the first resurrection. It said, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Now that's the Christian. On such the second death hath no power, 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So if the second death has no power, the second death had to have its power taken away. What about the lost one who dies? The one whom the enemy of death takes to the grave? Well, that lost dead person had not become a member of the body of Christ by faith in the gospel. So, he will have to rely on himself to put the enemy of death under his feet. And he's going to lose. He's already lost. He's condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He's rejected him. And if he continues that unbelief, he will continue in that condemnation. And if he's lost, if he's rejected Christ, he can't use Christ's feet. He can't say, well, the enemies are under Christ's feet, so they're under my feet. Because he's rejected Christ's feet. He doesn't want to become a member of his body. He wants to try it on his own. So this lost, dead person will suffer what the Bible calls the second death. And that's found in Revelation 20, verses 14 through 15. It's not the only place it's found, but it is mentioned there. Revelation 20, verses 14 through 15. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life. Now that's the book where all the saved are written was cast into the lake of fire. And you would correctly say, therefore, that the second death has great power over the unbeliever. He cannot put it under his feet. Our text back in 2 Kings said, He shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Now we've looked at the spiritual application concerning the believer and concerning Israel as well, and also the unbeliever. And I'd like to address for a moment how people in our day either misunderstand or misapply this great truth. I like that he says, all your enemies. It lies in the failure to recognize the word all. It's a big little word, isn't it? He said, all your enemies. After our country was attacked on 9-11-2001, many people suddenly became religious. They prayed for God to help the injured victims and the first responders who were trying to save them. They prayed for the enemy to be defeated and, and all of that. When a loved one is ill, people pray for healing to that person's body. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. When you look at the things for which people on Facebook pray, most of them are earthly. And some are downright carnal. But a few are about, very few, are about the greatest need a man has. People will pray to keep the physical enemy of death at bay, to defeat it. 
But the enemy of spiritual death is often not on their radar when they pray. There are many instances of prayer in the Bible, some for sick folks to be healed, some for other things. And they're all good when they're done God's way. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says, Be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. Luke wrote that the purpose of a parable Jesus gave in the first part of Luke chapter 18 was that men ought always to pray and not to faint. So at no time will you hear us say, well, don't stop praying for sick people. Stop praying for people who, are, who lost a job and all that. We won't. We want to do that. We want to continue to do that. Poverty is their enemy Sickness is their enemy. Physical death is their enemy. But the most important thing we can pray for, and this is why we ask sometimes during our prayer request time on Wednesday nights, you mentioned that there's a, a person who is sick, Brother Fulton, or I may ask, do you know if that person is a Christian? Because we'd rather focus on their salvation, major on their salvation and minor on their physical illness. We'll pray for both. But I don't want to just pray for a lost person to be spared from hell for a few more months and never give any attention to the fact that they're lost. And because death is the greatest and the last enemy, then we ought to be busy praying for those who need the enemy of death, the second death, to be put under their feet. And while God may honor the prayer to extend a person's life, which we are thankful for, nothing can keep them from dying one day. The body is corrupt. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. It's a wage that has to be paid, death. Sin demands it. But the enemy of death shall be put under their feet when they put their trust in the one under whose feet the enemy has already been placed. He shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Look back with me now in verse 40. Howbeit they did not hearken, but they did after their former manner. Howbeit they did not hearken. Let's look at that. That means they heard with the ear. It doesn't mean that they didn't hear at all. They heard with the ear, but they did not obey. We've studied the word hearken and looked at the sense of it several times in here. And hearkening is listening with the attitude toward obedience. Because I'll read you something in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And unto Adam he said, that is God said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life Adam and Eve had already eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil at the time this verse occurred and when God said, Adam, hearken to the voice of his wife, 
The problem with it is that Adam had not hearkened to the voice of God. And we know that Adam heard because the, the text said, of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it. God said, remember, I've already talked to you about this. I've already said you will not eat of that fruit. So it wasn't that Adam never heard. It's that he didn't obey. He hearkened. He heard the voice of his wife and he obeyed her voice rather than taking what he heard from the voice of God and obeying his voice. He chose to contradict what God said. Now, wives, if you want to be godly examples to your husbands, and you should, never ask or suggest your husband do something that causes them not to hearken to God's word. Oh, can't you just put that Bible up for a little while? We have company coming over. We'll never do that. Not that any of you would, but we're, we're humans, aren't we? Sometimes we say things that we wish we hadn't. Husbands, if your wife makes a suggestion or requests you to do something or avoid something and it violates scriptures, don't hearken unto her. You see what a mess that got mankind in. Israel heard God's word through the prophets, but they did not hearken to it. Look back in the text, it says, but they did after their former manner. And we can make a logical deduction here. You cannot hearken to God and do after your former manner any more than you can serve two masters. You can't do it. Now for an unbeliever, there is no hearkening to God. An unbeliever doesn't believe the record God gave of his son. Therefore, he doesn't believe in God as we who are saved. Because if he believed in God truly, he would believe God's word and what God says about himself, about sin, about deliverance, judgment, and everything else. And even if an unbeliever does something kind, generous, if he obeys the law, if he goes to church every time the doors are open, He's doing it because he thinks that's what's right. And as soon as his opinions or values change, then he will think something else is right and do that. Now the Christian, on the other hand, hearkened to God by believing the record he gave of his son, that Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures, the gospel. And that believer is now an incorrupt spirit in a corrupt body. And although his spirit is united with the second Adam, that's Jesus, his body is united with the first Adam. That's why it has to die. And until his corrupt body is changed, he will always be involved in a battle between the body from the first Adam and the spirit from the second Adam. We don't have the glorified body from the first Adam yet. This body has to die first. Or eruption.
So the believer will have two to whom he may hearken. The God of this world, Satan, and the God of the word. Now the God of this world with a little g, Satan, operates through these fleshly desires we have in this corrupt body. And the God of the word operates in us by his spirit according to his word. God doesn't have to check in and see how we're feeling that day as to whether he should give us his word, whether it would be a good day for him to make a suggestion to us. He operates in the believer by his spirit through his word. So when you're, you're, if you're a Christian and you read God's word and you say, wow, that's convicting. I have been doing wrong concerning that. I want to do right. That's the Spirit of God. That's not you just having a good positive outlook on life. That's the Spirit of God working in you. Because the flesh doesn't want to do that. The flesh doesn't want to do anything that's inconvenient or hard or different. And so I'll give you a passage from Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 13. Romans 6, verses 12 through 13. Now, this is to believers. If you read this chapter, you will see this is to Christians. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So taking what our text says that they did after their former manner and applying this passage to it. Obeying sin in the lust of the flesh was your former manner. Yielding yourself unto God is your new manner since you became a Christian. When you yield to God, you have to do it according to what his word says. People have all sorts of silly religious notions about yielding to the spirit. I'm just going to yield to the spirit. I'm going to yield to the spirit. And in some sort of weird way, they think that whatever it is they did at that moment was yielding to the spirit. They have their own interpretation of what that means when really what they're doing is trying to yield to God according to the lust of their flesh rather than as one who is alive from the dead. Did you know that you are alive from the dead even though you haven't died yet? That is a future truth that you possess right now. It's as good as done even though time has not caught up with that truth. It's a great place to be. That's the only place to be, isn't it? And our flesh, in all its efforts, are crucified with Christ. In fact, let's look at that verse that helps us to understand how our former manner tries to get in the way of our new man. It's Galatians 2 verse 20. You may be very familiar with it. Galatians 2 verse 20, where Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live... Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I, which I now live in the flesh, all right, so the life he lives in the flesh, in this body, 
I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how is it that man in his flesh does something pleasing to God? He does it by faith of the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. He does it by faith as one who is alive from the dead. Not by the efforts of his own flesh. Not according to his former manner. And in that verse, there are two lives being addressed. The life that Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. The life Christ lives in me is unto eternal life. It's the spiritual life he's given me and the means by which I am a partaker of his life. And the life I now live in the flesh is a life that will end in death. However, during the short time I live in this flesh, during the short time you, Christian, live in this flesh, we live it by faith of the Son of God. I don't live this life according to my former manner because my former manner was not by the faith of the Son of God, but it was according to the lusts of my flesh. So when you find yourself doing, saying, thinking, wishing something that was according to your former manner, don't blame God for it. That's you yielding your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin rather than yielding yourselves unto God. O Israel, why do you do after your former manner? Verse 41 so these nations feared the Lord and served their graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers. So do they unto this day. They feared the Lord and served their graven images with their own ideas of what it meant to fear the Lord. We covered that in great detail, the difference in the two types of fear of the Lord. These people... It's not only the Samaritans, but the children of Israel in captivity constructed this hybrid religion that would suit them. Their hearts were not right before the Lord. They put God on a shelf with all their other images. Remember they put that great altar next to the brazen altar? Well, we'll just put it next to it. And before you know it, the brazen altar is the one that goes, not the great altar. That's what happens with man. And so they remained in captivity. And if you'll remember, their king, Hosea, was already in an Assyrian prison. Israel is in trouble. And next week we will, Lord willing, finish out verse 41 and go into chapter 18 and read some happy news. We need that, don't we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for all who came, for our visitors, our members, for the people who tuned in online. For those who may watch it later on, uh, the recorded version. And Lord, we pray that your word would dwell in our hearts, and that we'd meditate upon the truth that we've learned from it today. And as we go into the next hour, give liberty, Lord, to the ones who will sing, pray, to the pastor when he preaches. Help us to exhort one another in the faith, and so much more as we see the day of Christ approaching. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.